ask by the power of your spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. I want to invite you to join me in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter number six, Ephesians chapter number six. And we are continuing on our study through Ephesians and sort of a sub-series on the armor of God, spiritual warfare. And since it's been a couple of weeks since we have looked at this, let's just read the entire paragraph so we are looking at this in context. So we will begin reading in verse 10. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, if you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that pew Bible in front of you, just as our gift to you. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or or in the heavenly places. In other words, our enemy is spiritual, not physical. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, or at all times, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Picking up this week with verses 15 and 16, looking at the next two pieces of, of armor in the Christian's panoply. Gone shopping recently for shoes. It can be kind of a, a challenging and a bewildering uh, event and experience. You'd think that picking out shoes would be a pretty simple task. You're like, I need shoes, shoes that fit my feet. But a quick, tr- a quick trip to the shoe aisle at Walmart or to shoe station or to Target or to wherever it is you get your shoes at reveals an absolutely dizzying array of options. Do you want dress shoes? Do you want them to be brown or do you want them to be black? Do you want running shoes? If so, what kind of running shoes? How much do you want to spend on your running shoes? Do you want work boots? Do you want steel-toed work boots? Do you need work boots that will meet the OSHA standards for, for work that won't catch on fire or whatever the case may be? Hiking boots. What kind of hiking boots? Do you want waterproof hiking boots or shoes for walking in the snow or snowshoes? I don't know why you would here in Alabama. Casual shoes, formal shoes, shoes for yard work, shoes for the beach, shoes to make a fashion statement, shoes to make a fashion declaration of war. Like, what kind of shoes do you want? Like, there's so many different options. Just take a quick look down the aisle where you're sitting. Look at all the different shoes that are represented just in this room. It's crazy how many shoes we have, different options we have. Today, the shoe industry is a 382 billion dollar industry like that's crazy the amount of money that is tied up in selling people's shoes by the way the united states even though we're not the largest nation in the world biggest market in the world for shoes just think about this when you go home to look at your shoe closet and your shoe rack and the shoes at the back door the ones at the front door the ones that are on the back porch the ones that you have beside your bed i'm not speaking from experience (laughs) chances are that the most technologically advanced thing that you have on your body this morning are your shoes. They've got those special inserts so you don't hurt your knees when you go walking and they've got a heel on them and special stitching and multiple types of material, maybe some leather and some rubber and all of these different things. It's pretty complex. Now this does have something to do with our message. Verse 15 says our feet need to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What's true for us in buying shoes in ordinary life is all the more true for those who serve in the military. The combat boot today is not just something that you can go pick up at your local Goodwill. The military actually has an entire department that simply does technological investigation to try to come up with the best boot possible. And depending on where you're deployed, I learned this this week, 
Depending on where you're deployed in the military, you might get a different type of military boot. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. It's not just one type for every situation. Shoes are a big deal in the military because if you've got an army that cannot march because their feet are covered in blisters, good luck winning the battle. If you've got a military who has shoes that cannot grip the ground and they will fall over when the enemy charges, good luck winning the battle. No soldier... Um, And by the way, I've never served in the military, but I I could probably get a live fact check from those of you who did. No soldier would ever dream to go into combat in a pair of flip-flops. No soldier would ever dream of jumping out of the airplane with a pair of Crocs on. I don't know why you'd wear Crocs. But the military's got these strict standards. During World War II, the United States had had to figure out how to provide combat boots to 8 million active duty soldiers who were fighting in climates as diverse as northern Europe and the South Pacific. They had to figure out how to get shoe repair shops that would come live with the troops to make sure that their boots were actively repaired. On average, a soldier would go through three or four pairs of boots every year. Like, think about the logistics of putting shoes on these guys. So what's the big deal here with boots? An army without shoes is an army that cannot advance. An army without boots is an army that cannot stand. The shoes are no mere accessory to sort of match your outfit and bring out the color in your eyes. In the military, they're an absolutely essential part of your equipment. So it's to our spiritual shoes now that we turn our attention. We've been studying this section on the armor of God. Just to remind you what this is all about. It is about spiritual warfare. This is about taking the spiritual resources that Ephesians 1-3 to talk about and then applying them in our daily fight against Satan. Part of Ephesians, Paul talks about the resources we have. Then the second part, he talks about the responsibility we have. He compares the Christian life sometimes to a walk day in and day out. Here in the final section of the book, Paul compares the spiritual life not to a walk, but he changes the image. He compares it to a fight, compares it to a battle. And his point here is to say, if you're going to stand in the battle against the armies of hell, you better take the equipment that God has given. It's called the armor of God, the armor that comes from God, the armor that is equipped, that, that, that belongs to God himself, that is imparted to his people. This is not just armor that God's like, here it is over here in a pile, but it is armor that comes from God himself. We're called to stand. We're called to to stand in the battle. Now, the enemy we face, verse 12, uh, is not a a physical enemy. It's not a physical entity. It's not the the United States government. It's not the FBI. It's not, you know, multinational corporations. It's not universities. It's not something that we can see or touch. It's not other people. Your enemy is not your neighbor who has a different view than you do on on who Jesus is. No, that's that's our target, right? Those who don't know Christ are not our enemy. They're the ones that we are fighting to win. They're the turf that we're trying to bring over. They're the ones that we're trying to to bring over into Christ's army. No, the enemy that we face, it's the deception. It's the attacks of Satan. It's the, the hordes of hell. So we've looked at the first two pieces of armor. We start in Verse 14, the main command here is the one given in verse 14. Stand, therefore. The call here, stand, fight, withstand the attacks of Satan. Now, how are we going to do that? We get these, all of these phrases. You're going to have to have it with the, the belt. You're going to only stand if you have the belt of truth, the revealed truth of God. That's the way that we stand. How are you going to stand? By having the, the breastplate of righteousness, putting on your flak vest to be able to withstand the, the attacks of the enemy, the imputed righteousness of Jesus that makes us perfect and holy in his sight. We pick up with a third piece of armor this week. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We'll also look at verse 16, the shield. We're looking at the shoes and the shield of the Christians, of the Christian. So the first point this morning, the first directive we have is to put on the shoes of gospel readiness. Pretty straightforward. Your feet need to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, Paul is thinking about the outfit of a Roman soldier. A Roman soldier. Paul's got one chained to him. He's under house arrest as he writes this. He's got a living illustration. He could probably look at the guy and be like, hey, show me your shoes real quick. Okay, they're like the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is a a living and and relevant illustration for Paul and also for his readers. The Roman soldier was clad in a half boot. So we often think of them wearing like the sandals. No, it was more of a boot called a caliga that had a sole that was about three quarters of an inch thick made out of leather. 
In the sole, they would have almost sort of nails. Like think of cleats that you would have, metal cleats you know, on, on, uh, that a, a football player would have. And then they would have these long straps that would wrap up the leg, ensuring that the boots stayed in place. These aren't just light flip-flops for going down to Dauphin Island and looking for, for, for sand dollars. No, these are, these are sort of the ancient world's equivalent of the combat boot. Having, the, having shoes on your feet is a sure sign that you're ready, right? You say, all right, we're ready to go on vacation, and then you look around, none of the kids have their shoes on. You're not ready to go on vacation, right? Having your shoes on your feet is a sign of readiness and of preparation. An army that has got the soldiers with their shoes on is an army that is ready to march, an army that's ready to advance, an army that is ready to fight. So this is, this is the, the mission here. Paul says your feet need to be shod with what? The preparation, that is the readiness of the gospel of peace. He looks at the, the shoes of the soldier and he says, that's like the gospel is for the Christian. Just as shoes symbolize an army's ability to advance and to meet the objective and accomplish his mission, so the gospel is the mission of the church. If we're going to put on the shoes of gospel readiness, there's a couple of things here that we need to be able to do. Number one, we need to know the mission. Put your shoes on that says, I know where I'm going. I know I'm ready to advance and to follow the commander wherever he leads. Now, we could render this phrase a couple of different ways, and depending on what translation you're reading, and both, by the way, both of these are legitimate. One is the readiness of the gospel, which is a readiness for the gospel. The readiness is to advance with the gospel. The other way we could render this is the readiness from the gospel. The gospel is what makes us ready. And I think both are true. The gospel is what makes me as a Christian ready to go into the fight. The fact that I am forgiven, that I have been given the righteousness of Jesus. But it's also the mission that I have to advance. How do we advance as the church? How do we take the gospel forward? By declaring it. Now, standing behind this is just back a few pages, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17. Speaking of Jesus, it says, he came and preached Peace. Okay, there's that word, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Jesus came and declared peace to them which are afar off, okay, non-Jews, and them which are nigh, the Jewish people. So this is a message we're saying, is this preparation that comes, readiness that comes from the gospel or a readiness for the gospel? What we have already in the book of Ephesians is this idea that the message of peace is a message that is declared and heralded. Standing in back of this is also Isaiah. All through this whole paragraph, Paul is making allusions to Isaiah all over the place. Isaiah 52.7 says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, gospel, euangelion, who proclaims peace, who brings the tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So when we talk about the preparation of the gospel of peace, this is a readiness to declare the gospel. Church, we need to know our mission. There's such a thing as mission drift, right? You study history and, you know, initially the Vietnam War. Hey, we're sending military advisors. And the next thing you know, it's a full-scale war without it actually being called a war. The, the mission drifts and morphs and changes, and that's not a good thing when the mission is not clear. Let's be crystal clear this morning on what the mission is for the church. The mission of the church is the Great Commission is to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded us, because he's with us always, even to the end of the age. That's the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not to go plant trees. The mission of the church is not social justice. The mission of the church is not political activism. The mission of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mission of the church is not to Christianize the culture. It's not to take back the nation. It's not to establish civic virtue. Though those may be things that happen when the gospel is preached as a result, they're not the mission. Our mission is to make disciples. Our mission is to convert sinners. Our mission is to proclaim Jesus and him crucified. Sometimes the church has gotten this wrong. Sometimes they have believed that the mission of the church is conversion by conquest. Let's go start a crusade. Let's use force. Let's use government power. Let's use cultural pressure. No, the mission of the church is not conversion by conquest, but conquest by conversion to, to bring people into, into the kingdom of Jesus. That's the order of the day. That means that our engagement with the world is to be winsome, not to be hostile, not to be angry. Loving persuasion, not arm twisting, is our method, is our approach. 
So we're going to put on the shoes of gospel readiness. We need to know the mission, but we also need to know the message. Ephesians 6 tells us, your feet need to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, what's of peace doing sort of syntactically here? Some might say, well, it's a message that's peaceful. We go around like, hey, we're very peaceful people, like peace. No, it's not that the message is sort of a peaceful message. It's that the very content of the message is, is peace. The way this is worded in the original, the, the, the preparation of the gospel of the peace, a peace that has already been won, a victory that has already been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, there's a couple of different ways we need to think about peace. The message that we are to declare that is to be on our lips is this message of peace, of reconciliation between God and sinners. That's the message. It is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message. Now, what an ironic thing. The context here is war. In this context, arrows are flying and swords are clanking and people are dying and bleeding. This is a gory sort of image that's going on in this passage. And then we have this jarring irony that says the the way that the church advances and the means by which the church advances is to bring about peace. That, that's stunning, right? That, that, that's, that should catch us by surprise. Listen, it is impossible. If, if our job as Christians, and this is, by the way, not just Pastor Sam's job. Oh, Pastor Sam preaches the gospel. He, he speaks on our behalf. It is the mission of every Christian to declare the gospel. You cannot declare a message you do not know. You can't teach a lesson you have never heard. You cannot explain a concept you do not understand. It's impossible to herald a message you yourself don't know. So the order of the day, beloved, if we're going to have our feet shod, we're going to have our shoes tied walking out the door, you need to be fluent in the gospel. Not just knowing a few phrases that you memorized. You know, you go to another country and you're like, oh, I know donde esta el baño. That'll be really important to know. Fluency is not just memorizing some phrases that you awkwardly bring into conversation. Fluency in the gospel is similar. It's not just saying, okay, I've memorized the four bullet points off the back of the church invitation. It's not just saying I've memorized four spiritual laws or I can parrot Ray Comfort's hell's best kept secret approach to giving the gospel. It's knowing the gospel so well that at any point in a conversation, you know how to sort of enter in and be like, I can see how the gospel relates. 1 Peter 3.15 says we need to be ready. There's that idea, readiness, preparedness, ready always to give an answer. To everyone who asks a reason of the hope who lies within, that lies within us. This means that our lives are creating questions that only the gospel can answer. Everyone in our culture is asking questions, whether they realize it or not, that only the gospel can answer. Everyone is silently asking questions like this. How can I belong? Like, I really want to belong to a community and a group of people, and some people find that belonging by, I'm going to go join a gang, or I'm going to be, you know, partisan politics, that'll be my family where I belong, or we hear a lot this month about the LGBTQ community, this place of belonging. So much of this is driven by, I want to fit in, I want to belong, I want to be accepted. Everyone is asking, how do I find my, my true identity? Like, really, who am I? Everyone's asking, how can I know if I'm good enough? And that's why we have this you know, the, the, this fighting online about people self-righteously condemning entire groups of people is I want to know deep down that I'm good and the way I know how to do that is to sort of condemn other people to make my own self feel good. You realize all of those questions are questions that find their truest and only lasting answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The place where we belong It's not in some constructed identity group. It's in the church of Jesus Christ. It's in the family of God where there is true and lasting and eternal belonging. You know what my identity is? The ultimate identity that everyone is looking for but looking in all of the wrong places to find. You know where that identity should be? I'm made in the image of God. I'm redeemed by the blood of Jesus and I'm in Christ. How do I know I'm good enough? Oh, beloved, you aren't good enough. You never will be good enough. You cannot be good enough. The goodness, the only goodness we can have is the imputed righteousness of Jesus. He's our righteousness. He's our holiness. All of those, the questions people are asking, the things that they are longing for, are really the things that were lost in Eden. That should change the way we engage the culture around us. Rather than becoming angry, I can't believe that you want that, is see someone who is looking for something that was lost in Eden, something that the heart is 
trying to find this fulfillment and it's looking for it in the wrong places. And say, what you're really looking for, the hero that you are looking for, the savior you are looking for, is Jesus. The one to love you unconditionally that you are longing for is Jesus. The belonging that you have never found anywhere, that's unconditional acceptance found in Jesus, in forgiveness, in grace. The affirmation you're longing for, that you want all of the culture to affirm you, can never deliver what you're looking for, but Jesus can when you come to him in repentance and faith. So when we're talking about peace, peace with God, now there's something that's implied by peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God. You know what that presupposes? Is we don't have peace with God. In our lost condition, we are at war with God. In our lost condition, we're hostile to God. Romans 5 goes on to say this, For if when we were enemies, the first thing you need to understand if you're going to have peace with God, the first thing you need to understand if you're going to help other people have peace with God, remember, this is, these are our marching orders to know the message, is to recognize that people do not have peace with God. They are hostile with God. Sin makes us God's enemy. Sin makes God our enemy. One day we will stand before this God. So if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? Through the death of his son. The death of Jesus propitiates, satisfies the wrath of God against sin and bears all of our guilt, all of our evil, all of our wrongdoing away so that we can be reconciled to God and have peace with God. The relationship that's fundamentally out of joint can be set right can be reconciled. Colossians 1 says, For it pleased the Father that in him, Christ, all the fullness should dwell. It pleased the Father that by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. The cross of Jesus Christ, his death in our place, reconciles God and man so that there can be peace with God. Now, why am I rehearsing the gospel again? It's because Christians, we need to know this message backwards and forward and to be so fluent in it that you dream in that language, right? They say, people who learn other languages say, once you start dreaming in Spanish, you know you got Spanish. Once you are thinking gospel and this is pervading your thoughts, you're fluent in the gospel. When you come to faith in Jesus, your sins are erased, your relationship with God is altered, your eternal destiny is forever changed. I'm also rehearsing this today because you may be sitting here and you've come to church your whole life, but you are still at war with God. You have not submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus. You have not submitted yourself to the righteousness of Christ. And you're still going around trying to establish your own goodness by some external marker Submit to him today, turn to him today, and have peace with God. As Christians, we become ambassadors of this message. What do ambassadors do? They come and try to establish terms of peace and, and relationships between countries. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God has reconciled all things through Jesus, and he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. You know what our job is? To be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. That's who we are, to be peacemakers in a world that is riven by conflict and hatred. We're to be ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading to the world through us to be the mouthpiece of God, pleading with the world to say, be reconciled to God, have peace with God. But this message of peace, okay, our feet need to be shod with the, with the readiness of the gospel of the peace. This is not just peace with God, but this is also peace that comes from God. When you get into a right relationship with God, other things in your life are made right as well. The gospel not only establishes this objective peace with God. It just is the relationship is now right, but it gives me this subjective experience of peace in my soul. People don't have that. There is an absolute epidemic of anxiety and depression in our country. Our country is medicated to the hilt with people trying to deal with their anxiety and their depression more than any other country on the planet per, per capita. 
Something spiritually is amiss. There is not peace in people's souls because there's not peace with God and we're looking everywhere else to try and find it. But when you become a believer in Jesus, you get peace from God, what the Bible calls the peace of God. A peace that is the knowledge that my eternity is secure. You know, you know how good it is to know that I might get cancer, but nothing eternal is going to change. I might lose my job, but nothing eternal is going to change. I might be hated by all men, but I'm going to be loved by, by my heavenly Father. I might be abandoned and isolated and bereaved, but nothing eternal will ever change for me as the child of God. That's a rock to stand on when the waves come crashing upon you. The peace that comes from God. You never have to wonder as a Christian, am I going to be good enough for the Father to accept me? Right? It's going to never quite be enough and never quite gain his approval. I already have it in Christ. I am accepted in the beloved one. To his people, God grants this internal peace to navigate life. We can stare at the waves and say, it is well with my soul. Now, this is where the, I said earlier, this could be the preparation for the gospel to speak the gospel and the preparation from the readiness from the gospel. I'm only going to be able to stand in the day of battle if I genuinely have confidence in the shoes that are on my feet, right? You'll only be able to stand if you have the shoes tightly on your own feet. The only way we will be able to stand in the spiritual fight when Satan comes roaring after us as, a, as the lion, when he hurls his arrows and his darts and the projectiles our way, we'll only be able to stand if the gospel is firmly tied to our feet and we have confidence in our standing before God. Now, Ephesians 2 gives us one other dimension to this. Ephesians 2, verse 16, says that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Okay, Ephesians 2, 14 to 18 uses the word peace repeatedly, and I think Paul expects us to sort of think back to that. The peace that Paul is talking about is the peace that we have with God vertically brings about a peace with other believers horizontally. These come together. The peace we get from God is not just a peace with God, but a peace with other people. So he's taking Jews and Gentiles, these warring ethnic groups that hated each other, and he says, through the gospel, you are a, you are a new humanity. The hostility has been done away with. The cross of Jesus has both vertical and horizontal beams. It forges believing Jew and Gentile. It forges believing rich and poor. It brings together black and white it brings together people from different political perspectives and nationalities and backgrounds and says, through Jesus, there's reconciliation in this one new humanity. Our world is running and longing for unity and peace. But guess what? That unity and peace is not going to be found on the other side of the next protest. It's not going to be found on the other side of the next piece of legislation or the next therapy session. That peace is going to be found only at the foot of the cross. It's at the foot of the cross where former enemies can embrace in love. It is around the communion table that natural foes can meet in faith-filled fellowship. That's the hope for your marriage. That's the hope for the broken relationships in your life. It's not to try to just sort of figure it out, but it's to come to Christ as sinners and find forgiveness and grace and healing. And then when you realize you're a forgiven sinner, it's so much easier to treat your spouse who's also a forgiven sinner with that grace. Those are the shoes we put on our feet. Now, here's my question. Have you tied your shoes? Do you know the gospel? When was the last time that you had a gospel conversation with someone who doesn't know Christ? I don't mean when was the last time you invited someone to church. By, the, by all means, invite people to church. I'm in favor of that. But giving them the gospel, telling them you're a sinner and Christ died for you and he was buried and he rose again. Will you repent and believe in him? When was the last time that you spoke the gospel? You see, it does not matter how clear you are in all of these moral issues. It doesn't matter how well you know your theology. If we're not telling people about Jesus, we're disobeying. I don't mean when was the last time you had a conversation about a Christian view on political issues. I don't mean when was the last time you told people how much you loved your church. I don't mean the last time you asked someone if you could pray for them, but when was the last time you spoke the message of reconciliation? Every one of us in this room 
should be actively engaging with people around us with this message. So we need to know the mission. We need to know the message. We need the preparation that comes from the gospel of knowing my sins are forgiven and my standing with God is secure. And the preparation for the gospel to take that message to advance into enemy territory on God's great counteroffensive that will eventually win. But the next piece of armor we need to deal with are not just the shoes, but now the shield. Back to Ephesians 6, verse 16. Above all, or in all these things, at all times, taking up the shield of faith. Now, we change the word here because the shield is not something you tie to your body, but it's something you hold in your hand. You take up the shield of faith, wherewith, by which, you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The idea of the wicked one, Satan, as he is attacking you. The shield is called the shield of faith, okay? So the idea here is the shield represents faith, and what a shield does, that's sort of what faith does for the Christian. The fact that he says, do this at all times, it's not to say this is the most important piece of equipment, all of these pieces of equipment are important, but to say this is one that you need at all times. You don't just put your shield to the side. A, a, A soldier may lay his shield aside when there's not a battle going. The idea here is to say the battle is always going. So always have your shield. And the idea for the Greeks and the Romans, the Greco-Roman ideal is either come home with your shield or on your shield. The shield will be either the the symbol of your triumph or it will be sort of your coffin to come back on. Now the Roman shield, sometimes we get the idea, we picture the, you know, the round shield uh, that someone would hold that was kind of small. The idea of the Roman shield, you know, if you've watched Gladiator, you know what it looks like. It's like, it looks like a door. That's literally what the word here is, by the way. The the, the Greek word is the word for door. The Roman shield would have been about four feet high and about two and a half feet wide. It was made of two layers of wood, and it would be covered with cloth and then with leather and would have some metal on it. And before battles, the Roman soldiers would take the shield and they would soak it in water. Now, why would they do that? One of the common tactics of the day, if you want to really cause chaos in the ranks... Shoot fiery arrows at your enemy. Light the arrow on fire and shoot at them. I mean, that's terrifying. Could you just imagine arrows coming at you, zing, on fire, and then they catch on fire when they hit? That's terrifying. So having the shield soaked before battle is the way to neutralize the fiery arrows that would be shot at you. The shield would absorb the arrows. It would extinguish the darts. And here's the thing as well about the shields. It wasn't just me alone by by myself, but you would have a wall of shields in the Roman legion that you would put those shields down and you would put over the top, the the soldiers behind you would put them over their heads to, to form basically an impenetrable wall. When believers lock arms together, not just as individuals, me and Jesus, but me with the church, me with other believers, locking arms, locking shields, protecting one another, we can withstand just about any attack. Now, here's my point. This faith, this shield of faith is essential. It's essential. Above all, take it. If fiery arrows are being shot at you, you're not going to parry those arrows with your hand. Right? You're not going to stop it by holding up a piece of cardboard. You need the shield with a double layer of wood, with the leather, with the cloth, with your comrades around you. The shield is essential to survival. This is the ancient version of the armored personnel carrier. This is the ancient version of the M1 Abrams tank, of the the armor that will protect you from the small arms fire. That Instead of those killing you, they just clink off harmlessly. This is the patriot battery of the ancient world. When the darts come, we're going to neutralize those with the shield of faith. This is the Iron Dome. So the idea here is Satan, the the wicked one, the fiery darts coming from the wicked one. Satan, in a sense, when he sends temptation and hardship and suffering into our lives, when he plants thoughts in our minds to make us doubt the goodness of God, when he comes at us, the way that we neutralize Satan's attacks is with faith. Satan is a personal being. Satan is a powerful being. He is the enemy of our souls. And he is constantly hurling temptations at us. He is constantly planting thoughts of doubt in our minds. He's constantly seeking to deceive, presenting himself as an angel of light, trying to get us off mission with other things that may be good but aren't the gospel. He's trying to get us to fixate on the future rather than live right now where God has called us to be. He convinces us that because we experience certain temptations, we must be those temptations. He convinces people because they have a passing 
desire for someone of the same sex. That, that must be who you are. Because you succumb to temptation one time, you're a failure and you can never do anything for God. Or because you have fallen off the wagon, go ahead and wallow in the ditch. That's what Satan will try to do. He will try to use despair and guilt and shame to keep us from availing ourselves of the grace of God. When we kneel to pray, have you ever felt this? You come to kneel to pray. I'm going to talk to God. And then every thought in the world comes flying into your mind. You're like, where did that come from? I've not thought those thoughts at all. And here they are. Could it be that those are arrows being shot from the enemy? You gather to worship. And rather than worshiping, all these worries flood your heart. You open your Bible, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, your Bible is set to the side, and your phone is open, and you're scrolling. Fiery darts, temptations, distractions. Fiery darts might be the form of a dinging notification. Fiery darts might be in the form of a descending darkness of despair on your soul. Fiery darts might be the form of blasphemous thoughts flooding your mind. Here's a word of encouragement. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. When you read the journals, the diaries, the biographies of great saints of old, what you find is to a man, to a woman, they faced horrendous attack from Satan. Martin Luther, the great reformer in, in Germany in the 1500s, would be completely overcome at times with just wrenching despair. There's a probably apocryphal story that while he was in the, the Wartburg Castle, he believed Satan was in the room with him trying to, to thwart his work of translating the New Testament, and he threw his inkwell against the wall, and the tour guides will be like, there's where he threw the inkwell against the wall. The point is, point is not to say whether or not that story is true, but to say someone as useful and as, as, and as effective as Martin Luther struggled with Satan attacking him. You could look at Charles Spurgeon at times facing crippling depression. You could look at someone like David Brainerd, just physical weakness. Many of the greatest saints have faced the greatest attacks of Satan. And if you're facing the attacks of Satan, it could be, it's because you are facing down the enemy. It's been said that if you never see Satan face to face, it could be because you're going in the same direction. So we need this faith. It's essential. If we're going to withstand these darts... Faith is essential. Now, what do we mean by faith? Faith, what we mean here is not just essential faith, but a personal faith. The word faith can be used a couple of different ways. So you say someone, do you believe in the Christian faith? Well, what you mean by that is there's a body of beliefs that Christians believe. You know, here's the Westminster Confession of faith, this body of what we believe, or we should earnestly contend for the faith once delivered. It can be a, the body of what is believed, okay, the information that is believed, or faith, the way we use the word more frequently is, do you have faith in Jesus, the subjective exercise of trust? And we don't have time to, to walk through it, but in the book of Ephesians, Paul is primarily talking about the second, not so much the shield of faith of have right doctrine, having right doctrine is important, but that's not the point here, have confidence, personal confidence Personal conviction, personal trust, personal reliance in the goodness and the character and the promises and the faithfulness and the might of our God. Personal faith. The subject of the faith is me exercising this faith and this trust in God. And so it is this faith, this trust that neutralizes Satan's attacks. It is an act of faith that is the soaked shield that extinguishes the fiery darts of the enemy. It's the thick armor on the tank from which enemy rounds clink off harmlessly. Listen, if you do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how much you admire Jesus, no matter how much you identify as a Christian, you're not in his army. If you, don't, if you are not relying in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are not on your way to heaven. What shall we do to be saved? What shall I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But Paul tells Christians, people who are already saved, take up the shield of faith. You see, faith is not just the one time back when I became a Christian, I believed in Jesus and then went back on with my life. No, faith is the way of life for the Christian. The faith that saves us is a faith that also sanctifies us. The faith that gets us to heaven also changes our lives on earth. It's a faith that transforms the way we live. And we take up that shield of faith. When we come to oppose Satan in temptation, I think we sometimes overcomplicate this. We really do. You don't oppose Satan with magic. 
You don't oppose, you don't ward off demons with words or prayers or mantras or little dangly things on the mirror in your car. You don't ward Satan off with a little bumper sticker that says, well, this will give me sort of spiritual power. When I was in Israel, they were selling mezuzahs in, the, in one of the shops. Those are the little scrolls that go on the doorposts with, the, with Hero Israel. And the guy selling them to me said, oh, buy this, put it on your house, you won't need insurance anymore. Um, I think he just saw a, you know, a gullible American, like, okay, I'll get this guy. But sometimes Christians have that mentality as well. I'm going to put a little plaque from Hobby Lobby on the wall, and that will sort of ward Satan off in the house, or I'll get the, 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 the sinful objects out of the house, and that'll... No, no, the way we oppose Satan is not with mystical thinking. It is with faith in the promises of God. We lift the shield of faith. Now, what is our faith in? Our faith is in God. The object of our faith is even more important than the one who is exercising the faith. Faith is not potent in itself. Some people are like, just believe. In what? Right? You can believe all you want that a bridge made out of paper will hold your weight. But it won't. And if you weigh anything more than a paper clip, it won't hold your weight no matter. I believe really strongly that I can jump out of an airplane without a parachute. The law of gravity will teach you otherwise. Faith is only as good as its object. So it's not just shield of faith. I just trust and believe and it's wonderful. No, no, no. It's faith in God firmly connected to the object. Great faith in an imaginary bridge over the Grand Canyon will lead you to doom. Well, even the most measly faith in a steel bridge will lead you to safety. Every, every Israelite who walked through the Red Sea was saved. Some of them might have had doubts, like, I don't know if the, wa- the water is going to stay or if the, the chariots are going to chase us. But they had enough faith to step into the gap in the water, and that was enough faith to get them safely to the other side. You don't need a great faith to make it to heaven. You need faith in a great God to get you to heaven. Now, the object of our faith is God. So much so that the, the idea of shield, which is faith, and God as the protector merged together in the Old Testament. So God says to Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your shield. The object, God, and the act, faith, come together so much that faith is both the shield and God is the shield. Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine: Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty? God is the shield. Psalm thirty-three twenty: Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm eighty-four eleven: The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Here's my point: Faith is not bare agreement with the doctrines of Christianity. It's not saying, "Yep, I went through confirmation class and I checked the box. Yes, I agree." It's not mere ascent to the morals of the Bible. There's a lot of people today who identify as evangelical. They do all the polls of how many people are evangelical Christians and how many evangelicals voted in such a way in the last election. When you dig down a little bit deep, more deeply, you find out that most of the people who call themselves evangelicals don't go to church, don't believe the Bible, don't believe the gospel. It becomes just a cultural identity. Listen, that's not the faith we're talking about. We're talking about confidence in God and in his promises. It's trusting God's faithfulness like a soldier trusts his shields when the rain of arrows come hurling down on his head. We trust in God's faithfulness like a baby trusts his mother to hold him. We trust him like a passenger rides serenely in an airplane reading a book, trusting the pilot to know what he's doing and the manufacturer to not have forgotten something crucial. That's faith. But it's not just personal, it's also effective. How is it that the shield of faith neutralizes temptations? Because some of you here today, you're like, man, the flaming arrows of temptation, they keep on coming, and I've sort of opened myself up to them, and, and now I'm, even, I'm in a place in my life where sin has taken hold of me, where the, arrows, where the arrows have sort of pierced into the joints in my armor. You're actively stuck in a sin that you know you ought not be in. You're, actively in a, you're, you're, you're perpetually in a place where guilt and shame weigh you down. How is it that I can, I can lift the shield of faith against those arrows of temptation when they come? Because I know tomorrow at 2 p.m. I'm going to face the temptation I always face. Or I know tomorrow that whatever the case may be. How do I do it? How do I exercise the shield, lift up the shield of faith? Satan will often fire the flaming arrows of temptation to ignite burning lust in our souls. 
lust for that which God has not given. And this is not just sexual lust, though it certainly includes that. It could be just covetousness, greed. It is only with confidence in God's promises that I can extinguish those arrows. Let, let me explain. When we sin, we are making a faith commitment. We are saying, I'm going to believe the promise of sin to deliver lasting happiness more than the promises of God. Sin at the bottom of it is a refusal to believe the promises of God. So Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But when I pursue impurity, I'm saying, I don't really believe that. I don't really believe that seeing God, that I have to have holiness to see God. When I give in to temptation, when I give in to greed, when I give in to anger, I'm believing the short-term promise of sin that is actually better than the long-term promise of God. It is a battle for faith to say, do I believe that what God has promised for my eternal joy is true and is better and more fulfilling than what sin is offering to me? If you've given into the same sin again and again, you know it doesn't deliver happiness. You come away from it more miserable than when you went to it. So this time is going to be different. When I, when I, when I get drunk this time, it's really going to make me happy. But it didn't, it didn't work for you last time. You're believing a lie at that point. So quit believing the lies and instead lift the shield and believe the promises of God to say, I believe his promise that the pure in heart shall see God, that the poor in spirit shall inherit the kingdom and all of its glory and all of its majesty. It's easy to rationalize, justify, to excuse giving into temptation. And it is in that moment of temptation that it is absolutely essential to say, I will not believe the lie that sin is trying to tell me right now. Instead, I'm going to believe the promise of God that it is always better, always better to please God. I'm going to choose to suffer affliction with the people of God in Egypt Rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, choosing to esteem the riches of Christ to be greater than the reproaches of the people of God. What about against discouragement? Satan will fire those flaming arrows of discouragement into your soul that can ignite and turn everything to charred ruins. In the middle of suffering, I think suffering is one of the places where we can be most vulnerable. It's easy to doubt the goodness of God when you don't feel the goodness of God. It is easy to doubt the promises of God, the trustworthiness of God. And many a Christian has fallen under the arrows of grief, under the arrow of despair, under the arrow of isolation and loneliness. When illnesses, when troubles come, when you're tempted to give up faith, it's then you need to preach to yourself. All of us are always having a conversation with ourselves all the time. That's basically what our thoughts are. We're talking to ourselves. Instead of listening to yourself, instead of listening to your feelings, so many people listen to their feelings. Oh, I feel this today. I feel that today. Grab your feelings by the, the, the lapels and say, listen up. I'm going to preach to you. Oh, my soul, why art thou cast down within me? Hope thou in God. I'm going to preach to myself what I know to be true, even when I don't feel it. That's what it means to lift the shield of faith, to preach to yourself what you know is true, even when you don't feel it. And we know that all things work together for good. Not we feel we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purposes. And what's this based in? Whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. The ground of our confidence is God. So faith, John Stott writes, lays hold of the promises of God in times of doubt and depression, and faith lays hold on the power of God in times of temptation. I like that. The power of God, the promises of God, we grab them both by faith. Faith is one of the most powerful weapons in our armory to withstand evil. And you know, sometimes in the Christian life, the sky will light up in a veritable orange of flaming arrows crashing down on you. Sometimes it'll be a cloud of hellish darts raining down. Nothing will protect you but the promises and the power of God. And the way you hoist high that shield is by saying, I'm going to trust, I'm going to believe, in spite of what I might feel, because God is faithful. This changes the way we respond to when people mistreat us. Our world says, fight fire with fire. If someone attacks you, well, double down and attack back. Give them a little bit of their own medicine. Retaliate. 
God's wisdom says, be of one mind, have compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. I lift the shield of faith saying, God, I trust you to be just. I trust you on the day of judgment to make this all right, and so I don't have to fight this myself. Let me give you some, some, some concluding thoughts. We need the shoes, the shields. Here, here's my first point of application. Tie your shoes. Tie your shoes. Don't have shoelaces that you're going to trip over. Here's what I mean by that. Know the gospel. If I were to put you on the spot right now and say, tell me, what, what, what is the gospel message? You have 30 seconds, go. Or the plane's about to crash, we're all going to die, tell me how I can know that my sins are forgiven, go. Would you be able to do that? When you get up in the morning, and maybe this is even a good practice for you, you put shoes on before you walk out the door, take a moment to say, God, give me an opportunity today as I walk out the door to have my shoes on to speak the gospel to someone. I'm not binding your conscience on that, but you're putting on of your shoes. Let that remind you to put on the gospel shoes and to pray. If you're not praying for gospel opportunities, don't be surprised if you are not aware of any gospel opportunities. A second application, soak your shield. If a Roman shield was dry and brittle going into battle, the flaming arrows hit it, it catches on fire. That's not a good shield. You don't want a shield that's going to burn you to death. Soak your shield by keeping your faith fresh. The way you keep your faith fresh, the way you keep your shield soaked, is by regularly renewing it in the word of God. Faith is not a, should not be a cracking relic of, I believed in God that one time. In a story you tell about what God did back in 1986, praise him for that. But our faith is in the future grace of God. Our faith is in the present promises of God. Be so steeped in Scripture. Soak your faith in the water of the Word so that it's, the shield is ready to absorb those darts. Because when the arrows rain down, you don't want to be looking around for your shield. You want it already in your hand. So may God help us to tie our shoes. May God help us to soak our shields. Would you bow with me? Father, you are faithful.